Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about what to do if your kid walks in on you masturbating, yikes, and what to do about erectile dysfunction. I also share my interview with Chris Angel Murphy of Gender Sexuality Info. And quite honestly, it felt like I was having an intimate conversation with a dear friend. I am so honored that Chris Angel shared their story of identity and how normalizing questioning as a lifelong orientation, it might open up some pretty amazing and pleasurable experiences. But first, today in sex. So we've all seen like the hot girl filter on TikTok. Okay, and if you haven't, you've seen the airbrushing filters on so many apps and on magazines, etc. that beautify people. And I may have also posted a hot girl filter versus reality photo on Instagram. So if you didn't know, go check that out. And as much as we tell ourselves, it's not real, I know people don't actually look like that, there is a little voice at the back of our minds being like, oh, I'm just not pretty enough or good enough or fit enough, or fill in the blank, enough. And we know that this is problematic when someone like Lizzo, who is insanely gorgeous and talented, uses the filter and says, What y'all think? Bitch, wait. (laughs) Are you serious? Oh my God. Ooh. Bitch. Oh my God, I was hating. I was hating on you. Wow. I look good. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I look, I look, I look good like this too. Don't get it motherfucking twisted. But I look good like this too. <laughs> I should get my lashes done in some contacts. And research has shown us that this is the case. Even though the research is still new and holy moly, I have a lot of questions about how TikTok influences our sexual behavior and beliefs. Uh, please, anyone listening who wants to do research, Go find that out because I want to know. The research that we do have, it highlights how we value ourselves and each other based on our bodies and not on the content of our character. Thank you, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for that one. But it's not entirely outside of our control. We can choose to spend less time on our phones, which would probably be great for all of us, but not entirely realistic. So if that's not really the most popular option, then the research suggests that the next best thing would be to think critically about who you follow. And if you find yourself facing an endless stream of appearance-focused photos next time you scroll, add some nature or travel into the mix. After all, giving up social media altogether is probably too big of an ask for most people, especially while the long-term effects of using it are still pretty unclear. But finding inspiring landscapes, delicious food, and cute dogs to fill your Instagram feed might just help you remember there's more to life than what you look like. End of quote there. And if this sounds a bit like a white woman's Instagram, well... An open window A novel A couple holding hands Fall. 
Mom's Instagram. And now let's get to your calls. Someone messaged me on Instagram the other day and said, My girlfriend's son walked in on her while she was masturbating, and she has felt guilty ever since. How can I explain to her that it isn't that big of a deal and that she shouldn't feel down on herself? P.S. Her son is six. This is such a good question. And first, you know, you're absolutely right that your partner has nothing to feel guilty about. It's definitely awkward, but it might be a great opportunity for her to talk to her son about how women also masturbate, not just boys. I just finished reading Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein, and I would recommend both of them reading it. I mean, both you and your girlfriend, not the son, because he's six. He won't be able to read that, but you, you know what I mean. It would be a really great way for her to think about how do we raise good men in our society and how do we think about masculinity and how to navigate that space as a parent of a young boy. Also, I want to say it's really great that you are supporting her and telling her that in the grand scheme of things, it really is okay. Of course, it was probably very mortifying in that moment, but maybe it's time to set some boundaries around when doors are closed and we need to knock first. It would also be extremely helpful if you, as another role model in his life, talks to him about sexuality and how important it is to honor people's sexual expression and pleasure. We know that sometimes this can be hard to hear from a parent, but research has shown us consistently that youth want parental figures in their lives to have honest conversations with them about sex and relationships. It's hugely important in their own development and will help them immensely as they enter into their first relationships and sexual experiences. The other thing I would recommend is the book Sex Positive Talks to Have with Kids, and it's by Melissa Pintor Carnegie, and it is such a fantastic resource put out by sex positive families. They literally, and I'm holding the book right now, they have a section on page 41 that says, Masturbation, a Not-So-Touchy Subject. And it gives you a breakdown about how do you have these conversations with folks of all different ages about their bodies. According to this book, the most important thing for children to understand is that their bodies are uniquely designed. They have an array of amazing functions. They require routine care for wellness, and they are theirs to decide how they wish to be touched and by whom. And also empowering them to know that our bodies can experience so much wonderful pleasure and soothing sensations. I think the best part of this resource is that it actually has conversation starters based on the age of your child or the young person in your life, as well as a short reflection activities for parents and caregivers to think about, you know, how was masturbation talked about in your household when you were growing up? Was it talked about at all? And what are your own values when it comes to masturbation? It sounds like for your girlfriend, if she really enjoys masturbating and that's something that brings her pleasure, then that's a great way to start that conversation with her son and empowering him with the knowledge that he can touch his body in certain ways that makes him feel good, but just knowing when is appropriate place and when's an appropriate time to do that. I'm really glad that your girlfriend has you. It sounds like a supportive partner who is saying that she doesn't need to feel guilty about this. And actually, this is a really amazing way to start a really productive series of conversations about sexual health. And for this next question, I also got it via Instagram, but I'm going to get Levi to help read it out for me. So Levi, are you ready? Yes. Okay, let's read it. Levi, go ahead. Hi, I have a one question regarding my health. I have difficulty with erections. And my response, that's a very common challenge that folks have. 
Most of the time, it has to do with stress or performance anxiety, so making sure you're feeling relaxed before any sexual activity can really help. There's also medication available, but it's best to talk to a healthcare provider to figure out what type might work for you. So I'm 35 now, but I had this problem since I was 24. I guess stress is probably a reason. I also used to be an alcoholic. Yeah, alcohol can definitely be a factor because it affects blood flow in the body. And if it's been happening for a while, it can become a pattern that you expect to happen, so it might also be psychological. There's a great website that offers discreet advice and can mail different types of remedies directly to you, and that's on uh, GetRoman.com. Okay, I'll uh, definitely look into that. Do you think pills would help uh, curing ED? I get nervous when it comes to sexual intercourse, and I do get erections, but they're very weak. I'm unable to satisfy my girlfriend, for example. So I hope that this won't be a serious problem in the future. I think medication can definitely be a good option for some folks and can help relieve stress if you know that you have something that can help with erections. And there are lots of other ways to engage sexually and satisfy partners beyond penis and vagina sex. Asking her what she likes and trying out different activities, such as oral sex or using a toy, that can take the pressure off of you and instead focus on her pleasure. It'll probably make sex more pleasurable for both of you, honestly. And if you're centered on what feels good and exploring that as opposed to getting an erection for like a very certain amount of time. Yeah, Viagra is good. I I mean, I maintain my erections for hours, but ultimately the next day the problem remains the same. I feel like my penis just has no blood flow. Thank you for all of your advice. Thanks, Levi, uh, for spicing that up for us. What What are we having for lunch? We're going to have sushi. Good thing my acting training came in handy there. (laughs) Thank you. The last thing I want to say about that is quite often I find that male-identified folks, they tend to have a hard time to send me in their voice memos. They'd rather type a message to me instead of recording their voices. And I understand because you want to make sure that you remain anonymous, but I will say it does help me so much when I'm going to offer you advice if I can hear what is going on for you. There's so much nuance that is lost in texting back and forth when you can't actually hear the emotion behind what's happening there. So I encourage you, of course, it is anonymous. I'm the only person who sees your name. And if you have a question for the podcast, send in a voice memo and I would love to include it. And now I'm going to share a brief review before we get into my interview with Chris Angel. This review is from Brandy RN via Apple Podcasts. They give the podcast five stars and say, fun and informative. I really enjoy this podcast and the variety of topics it covers within the sexual wellness umbrella. And while I love Leah's take on current events, articles, etc., I really like the variety of guests and the insight that they have as well. Thank you so much for that. And I'm not going to lie, the insight that we get in the interview with Chris Angel, I feel so lucky to have them on the show. Chris Angel's pronouns are they, them, they have a master's in social work, and are an LGBTQ plus educator. So here it is. So good morning. I guess it's just afternoon for you now, Chris Angel. How are, how are you doing today? Yeah, I would say I'm doing really well. Thank you for asking. Just, you know, had some awesome chances, you know, given that Pride Month is really popular for folks, and certainly folks will be hearing this after Pride Month. But, you know, given Pride Month is a time for folks to be like, oh, we have to scramble to figure out programming. Uh, It tends to be a really busy month for me. So Mm -hmm. I've had the very fortunate 
uh, privilege to do some training for different companies. And so I'm a little tired, but also just really excited to be here. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, I'm really good. I was thinking about that too, how, you know, it's kind of amazing that June, we're going to, we're going to talk about pride. We're going to talk about queer rights and, but it does seem like we need to cram it into June. And as soon as it's July 1st, we're like, okay, well, that was good. Let's move on to plastic free July now. And so not that that's also not important, but yeah, I feel like it's very apt that we're having this conversation in June, but I love the fact that people will hear it later because it's an ongoing thing. Exactly. It feels great because, yeah, to your point, it, this isn't just impacting us in June. It's going on throughout the year, every day, and there's so many other things going on. So I love it. Yeah. Love it. So maybe you want to start by uh, introducing yourself. Like, tell me a little bit about yourself, and then uh, we're going to get into some of the work that you do and some of your own personal experiences and journey. Yeah, on a personal level, my full name is Chris Angel Murphy, but I go by Chris Angel, both my first and middle name together. My pronouns are they, them. And overall, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. As of the past couple of years, I now live in Denver, Colorado, just because I needed a change of scenery. And I have a background in social work and community organizing and I don't know, I guess I want to kind of sort of cheekily say tokenizing myself where I've carved out a space for myself in speaking up in different classrooms over the years. So I think, you know, even starting in 11th grade, when the topic of gay authors came up in my English class, I don't know, I just remember someone saying that, well, being gay is a choice. And that was the first time I spoke out. And I had never really publicly talked about my identifying within the LGBTQ plus community before because I was still figuring it out. That's when I was figuring out all of the language. So it was really powerful. I was also like very shy, sweet, baby gay Chris Angel, you know, like, I mean, you would have never expected that from me. And then it's launched this whole career. And that's why it's interesting. Now I can talk in front of thousands of people. I'm still shy and awkward. I like to think awkwardly charming is my tag, but or punny (laughs) professional, depending. (laughs) I have both marketing (laughs) things going for me. But I yeah, I just this is deeply rooted in who I am. It's really important for me. And, um, you know, this is my passion work. And I, I feel really lucky to be able to do things like this, including speak with you today. Yeah, thank you for that. And I just, you know, I think it's it's often when I think a lot of folks are kind of first thinking about their sexuality and thinking about their gender, especially like into high school, when those big questions are coming up, there's hormones flooding your body. And you're like, what does this mean? And the world starts sexualizing you and and positioning you in certain ways and expecting you to behave in certain ways. So I was, as I was saying before we got on here, like having my my cousin here who just graduated high school, I was like, wow, I'm so glad I'm not 18 anymore. But I'm also like so grateful for folks like yourself who from that young age like took a stand and were like, no, like being gay isn't a choice. But then also like some people will like weaponize that in other ways, right? So there's such a – it's such an interesting time in our lives. And I feel like now into our like 20s and 30s, we're just trying to be more open to being who we are authentically and – 
being open to how that's going to evolve over time. Because I feel like when you're that age, literally, you're being told, well, you have to decide and, and you feel like you have to commit wholeheartedly to one aspect of your identity without giving yourself the time or space to experience that. Do you want to talk maybe a bit about that journey? And then let's get into some of your some of your work as well. Sure. So I started questioning all of this stuff for myself back in kindergarten, because that's when I started seeing other people, right? Like I was socializing with folks outside of my apartment building. So kind of weird situation where I lived with my dad and my grandma and nothing about my childhood was like traditional or what you would see on TV. And so a lot of it, I didn't know better that there were things going on that like weren't okay, for example. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in kindergarten and seeing other kids and stuff and I wanted to have friends, my family just wouldn't let me. Part of it was because of poverty we were kind of embarrassed about our situation. So that was like one thing that was ingrained in me, you know? And then the other thing, and like now as a social worker, this is a red flag if I've ever heard one, but I was raised on the motto, what happens in this house stays in this house. Mm -hmm. And so, right, that's a completely different vibe that's very intense. And so I wasn't even allowed to have friends or people come over for years and years and years. And I lived in a pretty nice area of Los Angeles. The only reason why we could afford to live there is because my grandma was the manager of the apartment buildings. But that also meant that everything I did was very public and reflected on my family. And so, and a simple, honest question when I was in second grade and wearing hats, you know, other tenants in the building would come up to my grandma and be like, oh, is that your grandson? And, you know, given where my grandma's education was at that time and when she had graduated high school, you know, just didn't have the language around that. My family, I don't think, was really ready to have this queer, trans, non-binary kid. And so, you know, as as much as I'm grateful that I could eventually land on the language that affirms who I am, and that's the language I use today, you know, questioning is also part of our LGBTQ plus initialism, right? Because I was today years old when I learned that it's not an acronym, it's an initialism because you have to say all the letters individually. So like I'm constantly learning. That blew my mind. Do you know how many years I've been saying the LGBTQ plus acronym? No, it's an initialism. You literally just blew my mind right now. Like, I don't know if I said acronym, but I've definitely like, that's the phrasing. Yeah. So blew my mind just trying to like help spread the word. And um, so like NASA would be an acronym, but anywho. So yeah, I just, I don't think my family was ready for that. And, you know, later on I would find out things about my dad. So my dad and my grandma have passed, um, have since passed and that all happened starting around, you know, 2013. But it was just like really hard because I just felt so isolated. The internet hadn't really come up yet. I, I did actually start finding community on the internet and it was hard because there still wasn't a lot of information available. I recall going to borders, rest in peace. And there was a gay and lesbian section. And I stumbled into that later on in high school, early high school. And what was interesting is that there were 365 yoga positions for sex, but I didn't see trans authors, gay authors, you know, stories, memoirs, things like that. It was all sexualized and it was all what I had been taught to, 
right? To just that we were just like this hypersexual community and that's all that we were, these sexual deviants. And so that didn't help to see that in high school. I eventually found communities online, but then my grandma, not really being one for technology and all that, would just be like, well, you're gay because the internet and just really interesting things like that. Like, okay, that's not how that works, but okay, cool. So going back to the initialism and why I brought that up is because, you know, questioning is part of it. And I think another adjacent identity maybe I have is just perpetually questioning, right? Because my identity has evolved a lot over the years. You know, one thing I didn't get a choice of was my assignment of my sex at birth. And so my family tried to socialize me to be a little girl and female most of my life and a woman and what they thought that meant. And so, you know, constantly having fights with my dad and my grandma, where initially my dad used to have my back and just used to be like, well, you know, let my kiddo wear whatever they want. Right. But yeah, there'd be a lot of nasty fights about it. And my grandma saying things like, that's not very ladylike. And like, that's not what I'm going for. But I just didn't have the language. And so what was interesting was these distinct moments where I would sit like on the edge of a bed and think, do I want a boy voice or a girl voice and things like that? And there wasn't anyone, anything that had asked me, but I don't know if I were to ever write a memoir about that time of my life. I mean, it would probably be something like, are you a boy or girl? Because that was just like overwhelmingly what I'd get asked all of the time. And, you know, until I decided to start socially and medically transitioning, as I would later come across terms like genderqueer, which, you know, that I identify as queer, non-binary, non-binary and transgender, you know, I've kind of dropped genderqueer. But, you know, as that was starting to happen, yeah, it just the questions that I got asked and the positions I was put in and just all of it was just really overwhelming. And I think one of the hardest things was around the time that I was coming out as genderqueer and trans. So this for me was around like 2007 or so. I lost not only my family because they couldn't handle it, you know, after a couple of years of trying to grapple with this and, and me having more, you know, honest conversations with them about it. But I'd also lost a lot of friends too, because, you know, at some point, what's interesting about the LGBTQ plus community as well is like, we don't always get along. There's absolutely segregation that occurs. And I didn't know better. I didn't know. Because again, I was just the little sweet, innocent, baby, gay Chris Angel trying to, you know, navigate the world. And so when I had built such a strong lesbian community around me, and then when they disowned me in a snap, you know, and they vandalized my car, even that was, that was really hard for me. And then, you know, as my beard started coming in, then my family in that same time period was like, yeah, this, this isn't it. And I just remember being like chased out of the house. And so then being experiencing homelessness and then not having those couches to surf on that maybe I would normally have because I lost those communities all within a couple of months. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't how I wanted to start adulthood. And I guess the last thing I'll quickly say on that is, you know, I just needed time to figure out who I was. And I think part of what was not helping was that everyone was ready to tell me who I was but they wouldn't listen to me. And so when people were like, oh, you're just a butch lesbian, get over it. It was just denying when I said, well, actually, I think I'm bisexual. And, you know, it just, it was really hard. Everyone was always trying to put me into a box. And 
I just didn't want to go into that box. I, there was no box for me other than like the Chris Angel box, what, whatever that even means. And like I mentioned earlier, that's still evolving, you know? So with that perpetually questioning and checking in with myself and hearing new language and, you know, feeling out what feels more in alignment, I, I don't think that takes away from the validity of how I identify today or takes away from my roots and different identities I've carried in the past by any means, I think it's okay. And I also have to remind myself, like, it's okay to be in this, like, the state of constantly evolving is really, I think, where it's at. Absolutely. Oh, this is just so, so much like heartbreak and, and strengths also in what you've just shared, right? Of just, uh, like you said, people trying to pin you down into one neat box so they can make sense of who you are in the world. And I wish it was a thing where, I don't know, maybe our conversation will maybe start this of like normalizing questioning as something that can be a part of your lifelong identity experience, right? And it's, and, and I really love that initialization as opposed to acronym, because I think so often we say, no, this entire group is is one group, and they all want the same rights. And you're like, no, the whole point is each of these groups can stand on their own. But quite often, we come together for solidarity, because we have been othered by society. So we, we have strength in numbers, but at the same time, a lesbian community is going to quite often will have totally different goals than a gay community, but who knows those intersections within that. So I think, yeah, I think there's this whole assumption. I, I talked about this in the last episode of the podcast of like, people get into this like, alphabet soup of like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I have a, a, a gay friend. And so now I'm friends with the LGBTQ plus community. And you're like, well, okay, like, that's fantastic. I'm glad you have a gay friend. But it's, you know, or it's a gay cousin, right? It's like yeah. a, having uh, an in at the club, right? Totally. Of being like, I'm cool. Like my my cousin is gay. And like, watch that cousins probably never actually said that they're gay. But everyone in the family is like, I think they're gay. And you're like, what? What? It's a whole, a whole thing where I think is so apt where I think a, a few times maybe uh, on on the podcast, and I, I really try and not position myself as an expert of being like, you know, I'm an expert in a very niche field. And then I even said, you know, like, I'm not an expert on bisexual identity. Like, I know my own experience in a very, like, privileged, cisgender, white perspective. And like, that's, that's it. But getting outside of that, be like, you know, you can't ask someone to just speak for the community, because that's not how it's going to work. And so I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. But there's just so much, so much in what you just said that if space had been held for you to say, well, I think maybe I'm a lesbian. Oh, maybe I'm bisexual. Or mm, maybe this is about gender. Or maybe this is how gender and sexuality intersect with each other. Like if you had just had the space to do that, and if that was normalized, what a more beautiful place we could live in where it's just like, oh, yeah, just choose however you want to express. You're not choose, but like also a part of choose the language that works for you as you learn that. And yeah, like I just... I'm, th my hope is that we can start like raising children and like teaching and educating folks that they have the space to do that. So is that kind of a part of like your, um, I don't know, like not goal or mandate, but you know what I mean? Like in the work that you do is maybe creating the space that you didn't have when you were younger. Absolutely. 
I've been on my own midterms and finals and luckily got the answers right. <laughs> I've, you know, just because sometimes I'd be in a human sexuality class and then they'd say something like, men, what do you like in women? Women, what do you like in men? And segregate us for no reason. And even in my sociology classes, social work classes, this would take place. And I always thought, isn't that interesting? And it's like, on one hand, I think they're trying to be affirming because they know better than to have people out themselves. And on the other, what is the point of this exercise? This isn't it. This isn't it. And so I'd have to be that squeaky wheel. And I was that awkward squeaky wheel, but I did it. And eventually over the years, I would figure out what my message was. And actually, I have to tell you, this is the first time in years, years, since probably at least 2015 or so that I've even been publicly sharing my story because for a while I just needed to not and not feel like I needed to put every little detail of my life on display for other people's like consumption and, and education and be that teachable moment. Because I think what we forget too sometimes is that when people come out to us, that's a gift because that is personal and private information and how we react matters. And rather than congratulate or thank them for sharing something so deeply personal with us, we tend to make them go into educator mode. And it's like, oh, well, now you're my my Google and I'm going to ask you all of the questions I've been holding because I met one of you in the wild and those are so exciting. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a point at which it's nice to be able to answer those kinds of questions because there's scary stuff on the internet and it's hard to filter out the noise of what is accurate and what I would consider, for lack of better terminology, be like better representation of the community. I've found different articles that I find to be really condescending that are meant to turn people in, into practicing allyship, and but they're just condescending. They're harsh. They're you know just not friendly. They're not engaging. It's just like you need to do this, and that's one way. Though if I'm trying to capture a bunch of people and get them fired up about my cause, it's just that's not the way I approach it. I approach it with more love and understanding and empathy. That goodness. I mean, I've I've recently learned that. People can be pansexual lesbian or bisexual lesbian, and it hurt my brain for 20 minutes at least, minimum. <laughs> and then when I did, again, some of my own internet search and all of that, I was able to sort of figure out, okay, cool. So it's like a way to have almost like a, a hierarchy of maybe overarching I'm pansexual or bisexual. And I also honor that maybe I tend to prefer women or, or something like that. So I, I think it's interesting that we can be so nuanced and carry so many different identities. It's just interesting. But yeah, like you said, just honoring people's process and not making assumptions about people and assuming there is a gaydar and things like that, right? I just, I've participated in that in the past and I, I now understand how harmful that was. And I also recognize that it was like this ego thing. Like I felt like I had a right to know all the other LGBTQ plus people because I was LGBTQ plus. So like, obviously by default, I must be like a safer space and a safer person to talk to. But it was also like, an ego thing. And I recognize that and, and how harmful that was. And now I don't participate that in that anymore. But I don't know, I, I want to be honest, because, because I am an educator, because I do teach on this stuff. And people are letting me into these spaces as a stranger to pretend I'm this expert, right, which I can, like you said, I can really only be an expert in my own experience. Mm -hmm. But 
I, I want to make sure that I'm clear that I mess up on pronouns too. I mess up on names and that's not to take away from accountability, but that this is a journey for all of us and the things are constantly evolving. Yeah. Oh, that's so well said. And I, and spoken as, as an educator too, right? Where there's just always, right? There's always that room to say, you know, this is what we're, we're striving for. The ultimate goal is, is learning and it's not to always be right, but it's to, oh, I got that wrong. Now I do the work to learn that and not do that again. Right. And so it's a, it's a process. So, okay. So there's two things that I'm really picking up on. The, the first one you made me think about is, you know, even when we talk about sexuality, there's actually like three different parts of sexuality that we could talk about. Like there's your identity, like the language that you use for yourself, but then there's also your uh, sexual activity. What are the actual things that you do? And then who do you be in relationships with if you decide to do that? And all of those things can be quite different. They can inform each other in different ways. But like you said, if there's like bisexual lesbian, it's like, okay, so how are we understanding that? Like, is that based on these are the sexual acts that I engage with as opposed to this is how I choose to identify and then this is who I'm in relationships with. And I think I think it's for some people it starts to, yeah, it, it's like a brain melt. But I think the, the most important part is just saying sexuality is so complex and our language has not caught up with how complex it is. And the same goes with gender. Like we're kind of bumbling through being like, we think this is the language that's working right now, but our lived experiences are far more complex than the words that we have for them. Yeah, we're just constantly trying to find the ones that fit. So I, I, I hate when, when I hate is a strong word. I dislike when people are like, oh, but they've, they've, they've changed their identity to this or now they're using this language. I'm like, yeah, we're learning and we're finding things that sit better for us that feel more aligned with, with how we actually identify or feel. Right. And then when I propose things like, let's try to adopt gender neutral or gender inclusive language, then someone may say, well, then you're erasing moms. And why? no, actually, I'm not. I'm saying there's like more people at the table. I have friends who are trans, they're trans men or men, frankly, and they are also capable of having kids, then that's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, to say something like birthing parent, it really only takes two extra seconds, but it doesn't take away from someone who is a mom or chooses to use that language for themselves. So, and I think, you know, there's also a lot of fear around teaching about this and it'll turn people gay or queer or something. I'm sorry. I've had so much cisgender heteronormativity stuff like thrown at me my whole life and it didn't work. It didn't work. I am so far away from that. And so, you know, in terms of my gender identity, my gender expression, my sexual orientation, all of it. And so it it didn't work. It's not about that. And when we don't have important people in our history, in our textbooks, you know, I mean, because of Alan Turing, we can turn on our computers, you know, and this is a person who was erased from history. We're not acknowledging his contributions because of pride. You know, when we say pride started as a riot, you know, we need to know that black and brown trans women led those fights in 
New York and the United States to push back against police brutality and things like that. And so when we say we don't want police at Pride, there's a reason for that. We have a deeply rooted history of being abused by them in, in so many ways. And so I just think it's a shame when we're not talking about this stuff. It's not just in life skills. I mean, there's there's so many ways it can come up in all the various classes. And for some people, the reason why they don't learn about this stuff until college is because of that barrier, you know? And it, it's really unfortunate. And And then there's so much more to it, you know? Like, something that I thought would go away for me personally is not having to plan my days around the bathroom. But I do. I still do. And so I have to think, okay, if I'm going to this like big box store, they have a gender neutral restroom or this place has a gendered one, but at least I can slip in discreetly and I'll, I'll be safe. And there's just so many things that impact me. And so there's just a lot of education that, that could be out there. And, and so, yes, I, I think it go, going back to your original question of or how I was perceiving it, you know, also like why am I even doing this work is because I don't want the next generations to have to deal with the same fights that I have. I think progress is having new fights, new causes, new things that we're addressing um, because we can't possibly take it all on at the same time. And so I just want to make it that much easier so that someone doesn't have to come out at work. Someone doesn't have to share their pronouns, but that it's normalized and they don't have to be tokenized and they can just live their life however they want. Mm, absolutely agree. Oh, I love, I love that of, of progress being new fights because realistically like there will always be a struggle and always fighting for for social justice is something that it's an ongoing process right and yeah just thinking about almost like you know, like as an educator but also having lived experience there is that burden i think of saying that you know i i here's let me share my personal experience because this is how we know people learn if they can like emotionally identify with something they will learn but what a vulnerable position to keep putting yourself in and even just saying you know i have to structure my day around where can i go to the bathroom and be safe and i think that's something that so many people i think a lot of cisgender people would just had not even would conceptualize right? They're like, I just need to make sure I don't, you know, like there is a bathroom. That's the question is, can I find a bathroom? And that's like the thing. So I think that that fight for like equity, but also acknowledgement of saying that like, we are all going to live and access the world in different ways. And how do we just make that a more equitable experience for folks? It's such a a, a huge issue doesn't feel like right but there's such there's so there's so much that goes within that it's it's how can i do my piece now this is the fight that i'm in so that later on the fight that other people are in is building on top of that how are we moving towards something and and the thing about good change though is that it's not linear either <laughs> like it's a whole right. process so sometimes i don't even get to questions i just like share my thoughts and then i'm like what are you thinking so <laughs> I, I, the only other thing I wanted to add to that piece is then because I do take on this work, there's this situation that occurs that in my personal life, I'm not as graceful. And what I mean by that is, like, even today, I've been misgendered. Like, like we said, my time zone, it's, it's 1237 p.m. I've already been misgendered about five times. And it was five times more than I thought I was going to be. 
and you know every interaction is another opportunity for that my local friendly neighborhood barista who doesn't know better because maybe i don't feel comfortable wearing pronoun pins on my shirt or my clothing there's so many things to think about and so having people understand that in my personal life i don't want to wear as many hats you know i want to be able to decide when i get to be educator chris angel and then also when i get to take that hat off and just be a personal well person rather right so the additional burden of having to decide to tell my doctor like hey you're misgendering me or you know just it just it's exhausting feeling like i'm constantly carving out a space for myself so that's what fuels my work but again it i want to be in control of how to decide when i put that hat on or not you know like I don't, when I go to professionals, I don't want to have to worry about being like, hey, you really messed this part up. Like you you put you put prefixes as examples of pronouns and that's not right. You know, you wouldn't put Ms or like that, those aren't pronouns, those are prefixes. And so sometimes like I'm I'm challenging myself to to do it anyway, because I mean, selfishly it is gonna impact me too. But I mean, goodness, when I think back to even my social work career, when I think about my bachelor's program or my my grad program, I was having a, an ethical dilemma of how can I possibly be a social worker and also be able to be out about who I am? Because inherently, when I have to carve out a space for myself, it starts becoming about me. And that doesn't feel good. I'm supposed to be helping this person sitting across from me. And so... Does this mean I have to be misgendered for the rest of my life and just have people use he, him pronouns for me? And and I just have to be okay with that. And, you know, I especially have been in like customer service roles where when I was a barista years ago and navigating that, it was really challenging because like fortunately I had a manager who was just so accepting and supportive and willing to be like, Hey, do you need me to help tell other people about your name change? You know, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to correct folks? Like was so on top of it. Like so loved that. And I would also then in the same breath have customers in front of me fighting about if I was a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. And like, I'm here, I know the answer. Spoiler alert, you're both wrong. But like, I really, because I'm on the clock, I really just need to get your order and do it in a way that's nice and pleasant for everyone and then get you to go off to where your drinks will be ready. And so can we not be talking about this right now? And drawing so much attention to it. Yeah, so I, I think I'll leave that there. But other, you know, just recapping the, let me decide how and when I want to be educator, Chris Angel, versus just like go about living my life. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's so hard to where you're trying to, as you said, like you're trying to create a safe space, whether it's for clients or people that you're, you're teaching, but then also like in your day to day life, but it's like, okay, so does that mean that I have to take on like other people's shit or misgendering me or other things? Like, is that a part of creating a safe space? Is that now I am unsafe? And that doesn't feel fair. And I think that's where so much of allyship comes into it of being like, you know, the more and more you know, cis folks who have their pronouns like in their emails or in things like that, the more and more it's just can become a normalized thing. And it's not just saying, oh, well, only only people who aren't cis need to share their pronouns. You're like, no, like we all have pronouns. We all have some sort of gender identity and expression. This isn't like a only a certain portion of the population. So and that's something that I think I think some people are so worried that they're going to get it wrong 
And so they, they stop themselves from speaking. But I, I think that, I think that's something that I struggle with. I really want to make sure that I say the exact right thing, but then sometimes I end up silencing myself and I'm like, shit, like I have a lot of privilege. I should be able to just say it and put myself on the line, but then you're afraid to like get it wrong. So have you, is that something that you've seen as well? Like I'm interested on like, I don't know, your perspective on, on allyship as well. Yeah. That's why. I mean, the, the pronouns thing is just so interesting. And that's why I created a whole course around it is because people didn't know they were stumbling through awkwardly how to share, how to ask, how to deal with correcting others or if they should correct others. I mean, also blowing people's minds that there are folks who don't use any pronouns. And I think what's helpful too, just to clear up, especially for folks listening is like when we talk about pronouns, we're talking about third person pronouns. Mm -hmm. So like I would still use me, my, I, all of that for myself. And, you know, when other people are referring to me or talking to me, I would still use like you, yours, et cetera. But just when you're talking about me, right, in the third person, whether I'm there or not, using they, them, theirs, et cetera. And so yeah, it, it it takes some work. And I loved what you said earlier about equity. That's one of the things that I teach on is this is about equity and people getting what they need, you know? So in this example of pronouns, right? Equality would be saying everyone gets a pronoun, you get a pronoun, right? But then equity says there's some people who don't want any pronouns. There's some people who have multiple sets of pronouns. There's people who go by their name only. I mean, there's this whole wide world out there of options. And what's interesting too is seeing other cultures and languages adopt to that as well, especially like Spanish ones, you know, French ones, like th those are coming out. The community is organizing and they're having great discourse around that, which is really exciting. But yeah, I think, I think allyship is the goal. I'm weary anytime anyone calls themselves an ally for anything, any community, because I think that's the bare minimum. It's just like, when folks, you know, companies, organizations, et cetera, change their icons, their graphics, et cetera, to the rainbow to try to show solidarity for the LGBTQ plus community for Pride Month in particular, right? Because we don't see it any other time. It's like, that's the bare minimum. So I'm not interested. Or like, even when you think of academia, it, this whole concept of a safe space has been really popular, you know? The safe space is meant to be like, here, you, I'm a person you can, you know, come out to and we can talk about these different things and all of that. But to me, it's similar to calling yourself an ally because I don't know what that means. There's no standard, you know, it's, it goes back to what you said earlier about, I have a gay friend. So it's like, I'm in the club, right? Like I'm, I'm in the know and like I'm woke or, or whatever it is that we want to say for that. And it's like, no, cause it requires more than that. And so allyship, you literally have to structure your sentences differently. It's just this ongoing active practice that you take on and you realize and recognize that is a whole journey it's constant learning and unlearning or relearning right all of those mm -hmm. and it it can be a wild journey though i think there's just certain things about it that are important at the end of the day so tying in again the the equity piece is just what do the people around you need and so even in the example of pronouns like for me, I love it. And I, I encourage everyone, I give them permission. I, you know, give, give them consent to correct others if they get my name wrong. So because I go by Chris Angel, trying to stand out, 
it's important to me that people do say Chris Angel together. And I don't know, I'm debating whether to say this, I'm going to say it. Um, I, part of that stemmed from me being in spaces where there were other people named Chris. And so one way to try to help differentiate myself was to say, okay, great, I'll go by Chris Angel. And this is something I've been doing since 2015. And part of that, honestly, is because like the deeper vulnerable reason for that is I don't want to be the trans Chris and I'm trying to control that narrative. And so now it's become so part of who I am. And I don't know, was that the right call, the bad call? You know, is, is that, I mean, that's so binary and that, so I don't think that's the route to go, but I, I will say it just feels a lot better. And so as an ally, you know, great, cool, I'll take it bare minimum. But if someone's rather engaging in allyship and they're constantly asking and listening and passing the mic and amplifying voices and, you know, things like that, then that's doing the work and that's going to be far more reaching and, and so much more rewarding for everyone involved, I feel. I'm curious, like, what are what's your hot take on allyship and, and allies and, and all of that? Yeah. Oh, there's 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 so much I find like for me, I need to like sit and like process and I'm like, mm, I'm just like thinking through. But I I guess kind of building off what you're saying is is, you know, allyship is a verb, right, is an action that we are constantly engaging in. And how do you then, is it a transformation of allyship into being an advocate? And, and like you said, knowing when to take the microphone, knowing when to pass it off and knowing when to just set the stage and then, you know, stand and, and clap and cheer, you know, like, how do you, this is where all of my like theater background is coming in. <laughs> right. But yeah, just trying to think about how I, I think some people would feel like, oh, that's so much work. You're like, yeah, it is. But it's also a part of being a human being who sees and respects other people for their the diversity and the the I think like that's one of the most beautiful things about being alive though is that like all of us have these like complex intersections. And I mean as like a, a feminist scholar and and as you know someone who's engaged in sexual health, I'm always so interested in how people's stories blend together because no one is the same. And that's just a, a really beautiful thing. And so I don't know if I have a hot take on allyship other than I, I feel you of, I think I feel wary um, as someone who like, I, I have not experienced like marginalization in my life or like oppression in, in many ways, right? Like as a woman, absolutely in terms of being hypersexualized or told that I need to behave in, in certain ways. Like when you said earlier on about like, oh, that's not very ladylike. I was like, oh my gosh, how many times did my grandmother say that to me? And just even now feeling like, oh, like, what, what am I wearing? Like, do, do I look bi or do I, do, do I look too femme? Like, you know, there's always, there's all sorts of things within that. But really, those are, these are such minor experiences that I've had. So I feel like most of the the space that I take up is how to be an engaged ally, be as someone who ha is white, as someone who is cis, someone who's middle class and university educated, just being like, okay, like, what does that actually look like? And I, I think it always comes back to the unlearning and the relearning, because I think we're just so 
in, in academia, but I think in so many ways, so afraid to be wrong and so afraid to, I don't know, to, to that, that we're not educated enough on things. So I find a hard time where, as we were saying before, there's so many things to be knowledgeable about and so many causes to fight for and wanting to find ways to add to that without just like making noise right? You're like, am I detracting? Are people listening to me when they should be listening to someone else? And that's something I feel like, as someone who holds immense privilege, that's a very minor thing to take on that, you know, that ethical dilemma in your life. You're like, yeah, I'm not worried about my safety when I leave my house, right? I'm not worried that someone will make assumptions about me or misgender me or treat me in a different way because of my race. Like this is a very minor thing for me to constantly think about holding space and not just, I don't know, just being a better human. I don't know. Is that what it means to be an ally? I, yeah, I, I think that's, that's my hope is like when I teach and train now there's a lot of different tools i use that aren't inherently lgbtq plus specific and so one of the things i touch on is the platinum rule i'm curious have you heard of that no i haven't so the golden rule right we hear that all around it's in most major cultures religions etc right treat others the way you want to be treated right and then if we go back to the equity piece the platinum rule instead says treat others the way they want to be treated. And it's like this really simple and subtle shift and it makes a huge difference, right? Because you're recognizing we don't all want to be treated the same, right? Like if I'm hurting, there's different ways I want to be supported, but it may not be the same in the ways that you want to be supported when you're hurting, right? So maybe for me, I just need to vent. I need to like wear myself out just venting and talking through it and soundboarding. And I, I can't have people give me advice or, or suggestions unless I say that I'm open to it, right? I have to be in the headspace for that. But if I'm venting, just let me vent if you can and maybe pat me on the back, give me a hug, you know, something like that. But yeah, it's just, it's just recognizing we want to be treated dif- differently. And it's not about special treatment. It's not about political correctness, right? And even going back further to what you had mentioned about allyship and people being afraid of getting it wrong, there's usually two, two tools I teach around that now that are newer for me to share out. And so one of them is this whole concept of, oops, ouch, I'm sorry, which I don't want people to literally say that to someone else, Um, but rather acknowledging, oops, I made a mistake. Ouch, it's probably hurt that person. And I'm sorry, being a genuine apology. And if we look to when Brene Brown interviewed Dr. Harriet Lerner on her podcast, she talks about, Dr. Harriet Lerner talks about the nine ingredients of a true apology, right? Because I'm sure everyone listening in at some point in their life has had a very performative apology, right? And that doesn't feel good. You know, it's like, I'm sorry you feel that way, but, or, you know, the things like that, where it's like, oof, okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but rather putting the onus on what we actually did, how we showed up, that behavior, that action that we took that didn't feel good. But I think all of these ideas dance around each other and complement each other well. And that's why even if I'm doing LGBTQ plus 101, so to speak, or a foundational teaching around LGBTQ plus topics, I've 
included these things because I think it just helps us to be better humans overall, like for any communities. And it accounts for intersectionality too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Something that I've tried to focus on, I'm thinking about what, what you've just said about how, I can't remember where I heard this, but when someone clearly needs to talk to you about something or work through something, you know, you can ask you like, do you want sympathy or solutions? I don't know if I love the word sympathy, but I do like the alliteration. But it's, you know, am I am I here to like listen and go, mm-hmm, that sucks. I hate that. And to just like affirm that that is what that person is feeling. Or do you want me to game plan with you? Like, are we coming up with, okay, what's our actionable steps? And it's something that I've tried to do now in a lot of the important conversations I have in my life, or even just daily conversations that I have with my partner. It's like, okay, hold on, before we get into this topic, where am I coming at from? Because if I'm going to be a supportive partner to you, I want to know what what do you need from me right now? And then doing that same thing when, you know, in an education setting and family and friendships and whatever of being like, okay, are we here to hear each other and to just be in that space of feeling the feelings deeply and just letting ourselves do that? Or am I here to get pissed off with you and then we're going to do something about it? Right? Like, what do you need from me? And knowing that a lot of folks might need both, but you need them at different times. And you also might need a million other things within that. So I think maybe it's listening with more intention. And instead of, I think it's very clear, I was thinking about um, what you're saying about performative apologies. It's also very clear when you're having a conversation with someone and they're listening and they're like, I am waiting for my turn to speak now, right? Like, I think there's a difference when you actually like slow down and be like, this isn't about your time to speak, but it's about your time to listen and then your response, which I'm having kind of a meta moment of like, at, as we're doing a podcast and being like, I'm talking a lot. So. <laughs> oh, and it's great. Cause it's like a, for me, it's like a tennis match where we go back and forth, right? Like something I get out of this is that we're in this together and I love what you said around your offerings, because, you know, if we're friends and I need to vent, but you're not in a space for that, I think it's so important for you to acknowledge and be honest with me so I can get my needs met. Like, hey, I'm actually not in a place right now where I can hear you. I'm so sorry. Here's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, alphabet soup, what I can offer you. You know, I can give you a hug. I can take a walk with you. I can do these other things. Does any of that feel good to you? If not, like, I'm so sorry. I just, I can't hold the space for you right now. And so it's like the boundaries and consent go both ways, right? I think that's so important. So I'm so glad that you brought up about like the offerings and, and yeah, the intentionality of the conversation. Like, what do we want to get out of this? Wow. Chris Angel, we have covered a lot of ground and I am into it. There's there's so much more that I do want to talk to you about. And I feel like if you're open to it, I'll probably just have you back on the podcast so we can continue this because there's so much that we had talked about before and we haven't gotten a chance to get to. The the one last thing that I that I want to talk to you about, and it's come up in our email correspondence and when we first talked to each other, just about that understanding of boundaries and consent. And that's a whole other conversation in itself. But I think quite often when we think about it, we think about how do I seek consent from another person? It's always about that interpersonal. And I'm like, let me make sure that this person is safe and are they okay with what's happening? But it doesn't also start from a, what are my own boundaries? How do I understand that? And 
communicate that so that someone can reciprocate and be like, okay, what are your boundaries? How, how do we work in a consent based way? Not just in sexual settings. How is it in every aspect of our life? So I don't know any uh, final thoughts around that. And again, knowing that's a huge concept to, to throw at you. Well, I love it. I appreciate you asking that. I would say consent is so important throughout. So I love that there's a lot more conversations around it, especially around, you know, sexual activities. And I don't know, I think there's an argument to be made almost anywhere that consent is important and should be a default. Because for example, if I'm in a place of work, I'm going to be feeling a certain way if people throw time on my calendar without asking me, right? Like there's consent around that. So a simple two extra again seconds, maybe or five seconds it takes to just ask, hey, can I throw some time on your calendar to talk about this? Great. Consent is so interesting. And I know some people don't believe in it. Some people do. Some people just don't really understand it maybe yet, things like that. Though I just, I do think there's ways to introduce that everywhere, I love being able to talk about consent and boundaries in, in different contexts. Oh, I know that our, our next conversation will just be excellent. And I thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm interviewing Larissa Gunkel all about sexuality and disability. If you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send me a voice message on Instagram at dr.leatidy. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.